Brought to you by North Memorial Health, where customers are treated like family. That means a big smile when you walk in the door and making sure your visit is as pleasant as possible. It's just like your family treats you. Find your healthy family at northmemorial.com slash family. Welcome to another episode of the Access Vikings podcast. My name is Andrew Kramer, joined again by Ben Gessling and Michael Rand of the Star Tribune via Zoom. Hi, guys. Andrew, how are you? Doing pretty well. Like I told you guys before. Thank you, Ben. Thank you for waving. Not as not not as good as the Minnesota Vikings, who must be feeling pretty good watching a film of their next opponent. It is the winless Detroit Lions coming to town. I think it is just what they need to kind of bounce back. Because uh, if they don't, I guess we can talk about the ramifications if they somehow drop this game. But there seems to be little doubt from really anybody's end that the Vikings are a better team as the winless Lions come in to start their division slate. So we'll talk about Sunday. We'll talk about some of the bigger issues, plaguing the one and three Vikings, and maybe even entertain the thoughts of what, what could happen if they drop this game. Might be the uh, most early what must-win uh, game on any NFL team schedule. Um, ben, let's, let's talk some minutia first, though, because they're going through some things with some injuries on defense, some guys coming back, some guys potentially not. Uh, what have you heard about the health of some of their defenders? Well, Michael Pierce not practicing today after injuring his elbow slash shoulder, as it was put on the injury report last week, and then aggravating the elbow on Sunday. Uh, from what I heard yesterday, he has told teammates, uh, I won't be back for a while. So that's not good news for a team that is heading into a pretty tough stretch of run games that it has to deal with. Now, we don't know if Carolina will have Christian McCaffrey, but that's a team that likes to run the ball. Then you get Zeke Elliott after the bye and then the Ravens. So it's a difficult stretch if you're talking about a while. I don't, I don't quite know what a while means. Uh, I, would, I would assume that probably means at least a few weeks, and we'll have a better sense of that probably later today if they put him on injured reserve because that would indicate that they think he's going to be out at least three weeks. So um, that's where we stand there. They, I think the idea that they will have him on Sunday is – extremely far-fetched though Mike Zimmer wouldn't admit to as much today uh, when he got asked about it and then Anthony Barr practicing today it was it was interesting to hear him to kind of talk about his process as an eighth year guy certainly a guy that is not shy about doing things in the way that he feels is best and not necessarily um, allowing himself to get painted into a, a corner and playing before he feels like he's ready to do it he said I'm pretty comfortable telling them uh, this is what it is. I know my body better than anybody. I wasn't ready to go out there. He said, even though he was questionable last week, there was never any chance he was going to play. Uh, you can draw your own conclusions of whether he should have been listed as questionable because of that. But that's where we are. And then I think the big thing going forward is I've heard it, as it's been told to me, it's a long history of being issues, a long, long history of chronic stuff. So he said today he feels like we're just about out of the woods. We'll see if that holds up but I would expect to see him Sunday for the first time in 13 months. I think uh, probably, yeah, just about 13 months, right? Almost. Yeah. Ben, I guess I would just talk about bar a little bit quick, because this is something where from what everybody said and just using common sense, we can't really expect this guy to jump in and play hundred percent of the snaps right away. Can we? No, I wouldn't think so. I mean, he said he feels like three weeks of practice is enough for him to be ready to go, but, a lot of this comes down to, is he able to play every play, do what he needs to do and, and come back and do it over and over and over. And if that isn't able to happen, 
then I think it gets pretty tough to to say that you can go out and count on him and, and put him in, back into the the regular role. Now, if he feels like the rehab process has done enough to the point where he can go out there and play, he may be thinking, okay, I can go out and do what I normally do and we'll be fine. But I just, I think it's enough of a moving target that there's some risk to it though. I, I do know he has been doing a few more things differently in terms of rehab in the last few weeks that I think he feels better about and he thinks are going to put him in a better spot. So um, yeah, I, I, I think that one's going to be kind of an ongoing issue that we're probably looking at and, and writing about and, and asking all of the people that love to hear those questions um, probably throughout the year, if I had to guess. Yeah, and, and Barr, too, just talking specifically with his that knee, because, Ben, you're saying – it sounds like you're saying this – you expect that knee thing to not just kind of go away overnight. This has been now two months, right, between early August when this popped up to right now. Um, this doesn't sound like it's the kind of injury that – he was asked directly today if it's tendonitis or something that's long-term – Ben, you've reported that it is something that's chronic with his knee. Is yeah. that right? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, tendonitis has been uh, that that has been raised to me when I've talked to sources about it, that, that there is a lot of chronic stuff. He's, he had knee surgery on his meniscus on his left knee. Now, we believe this is the right knee that's particularly been troublesome this time. But as it's been explained to me, there's enough issues with both knees that it's you know, he's been playing football an awful long time. And I think some of this is probably just going to be baked in at this point. He, he has been managing knee issues, as I understand it, for most of his career. Uh, I mean, you can go back to before he signed his, his contract with the Vikings, before he got to free agency. It's, it goes back that long. So, um, yeah, it's a long stretch of time that he's been managing this. And, and when it's been that much, I think you probably have to assume that it's going to be there and it's going to be something he has to figure his way through however long he's still playing. Yeah. It'll be interesting to see how much of a role he can play against Detroit. If they decide to play him as that third linebacker in base and keep Nick vigil as their nickel, or if they put bar right back into a full-time role and then just maybe have it on a pitch count and kind of monitor him that way, because they're fortunate in, in at least getting some pretty good production out of Nick vigil. I mean, he missed a tackle on that big 33 yard run on the draw play, before halftime, but in general, I think they've gotten a lot more out of Nick Vigil than maybe they certainly we as we were expecting for them to get out of uh, his place. So they at least found something there. But Mike, I wanted to ask you about this defense. When we're talking all these injuries, maybe they won't have Pierce, but you're going to get Barr back. And then after that Browns game, the question that Ben, myself, and Lavelle talked about is, well, how good was this defensive performance considering how many missed throws Baker was making, how many wide open receivers there seemed to be? Um, how are you feeling in general just about where this defense is at? Because when you look at the stats, they at least are allowing fewer points every game since that Arizona game. Yeah, I feel okay about it. I don't feel like this is one of those top five, top 10 Mike Zimmer defenses, at least not yet. And he might feel differently. He might be convinced that and he keeps saying this is, a, this is a good football team. This can be a good football team. And that probably is predicated on what he thinks about his defense. But if you just, if you look at the points you know, Cleveland left on the board the other day. I thought, you know, it's, I thought they played reasonably well in Seattle, especially in shutting them out in the second half against Seattle. Um, and, you know, end of the day, you only allowed 14 points to Cleveland. Like it's, it, the, the scoreboard says 
you know, says what you what you did to a certain degree. That the biggest concern, I guess, I have, maybe not a hundred percent for Detroit, but you know, in in a little bit against Detroit is they're giving up four point eight yards per carry this season. Um, the rush defense, which I think they thought would be cleared up this year after being so bad last year, hasn't been any better than it was last year. The four point eight yards per attempt is fifth worst in the NFL, they're giving up, you know, the eighth most yards on the ground so far this year. Like that's not a recipe for sustained success. And as a matter of fact, it's a recipe to be in a close game that you don't want to be in against Detroit, especially if Pierce is out. The Vikings are going to get though, at least some help because the lions are really banged up. They've had their starting left tackle, Taylor Decker on IR since the beginning of the year. Uh, they just lost their starting center, Frank Ragnow. Uh, Minnesota high school football followers will recognize that name out of, uh, I think he played for Chanhassen, um, out of, out of Victoria. And so he's out and now it sounds like Penny Sewell, their top draft pick who was playing right tackle is dealing with an injury and he might not play. So I was making the joke with Ben that I I feel like he and I could play nose tackle and they might be all right (laughs) in this one. Um, that obviously being somewhat facetious because it's DeAndre Swift. It's Jamal Williams. It's, it's still at least a, a running back tandem in Detroit that has kept them in close games, helped them come back against San Francisco, help them stay in that Baltimore game. Um, ben, as you look at these matchups, we were also talking about this off air. This sets up like, how can the Vikings lose this game? They can't possibly drop this game, right? Uh, they cannot, if they want to be taken seriously. I think this is one that, I mean, for all the talk about, we've been this close to four and oh, and, and we're, this is a really good team. You don't lose this game if that's true. I mean, and I don't think you even mess around with it a whole lot. Now the comeback to that is all these games are close in the NFL. The Ravens should have lost to this team. If not for Justin Tucker making the longest field goal in NFL history and doing it in a way that added an extra dose of heartbreak that only Detroit Lions fans can truly probably appreciate. I, I still think at home, this is one that you have to take care of business fairly easily and get yourself out of there in, in good health because the, the schedule after this is extremely difficult. The, the next six teams they play have a combined record of 17 and seven. Four of those six after Sunday are on the road. Uh, they have a four-game stretch from Halloween night to the third weekend of November where the quarterbacks they face are Dak Prescott, Lamar Jackson, Justin Herbert, and Aaron Rodgers. And of the road games, two of them are on the West Coast, including one that is a week after they play in Baltimore. So they get the old East Coast, West Coast back-to-back. So it's difficult for a lot of reasons. And if you want to be taken seriously, you can't go into that stretch at one and four and trying to use that six game run as the thing that, okay, we're going to, we're going to fix our season after the bye week. Cause it's going to be five of those six after the bye will be fine. You have to assume that that's going to be a tougher stretch to win games. You got to take care of this one. Now, if you're, if you're even serious about going to playoffs. Yeah. And I would never accuse, highly paid professional football players of tanking or not trying, but it's clear that the Detroit front office is not necessarily building a contender this year. They're not, they've kind of changed courses here by shipping out Matthew Stafford, bringing in Jared Goff, those draft picks, that contract. That was an acceptance of with a new head coach and Dan Campbell, we are looking to build a new team from the ground up. 
and, you know, maybe compete in the process, those kinds of things. But the Vikings and the, the Lions are in such different places. The Vikings are a regime that is fighting to, to stay put, to prove that they can still contend and, and still field a team that is worth um, talking about. While Detroit is basically sitting there and saying, you know what, if anybody's got an injury, you know, you can sit this one out and we're going to take Jared Goff. And he's not, I don't, everybody knows, I, I don't think he's a good quarterback, but the last time the Vikings faced Jared Goff was a 465 yard, five touchdown Thursday night, just route that the Rams put on the Vikings. And was it 2018? I think it was. Yeah. Yeah. It was week four, I believe 2018. We, we watched the game from a, uh, a trailer, basically, <laughs> in uh, the L.A. Coliseum, instead of the 2028 Olympics. Hopefully they have a better press box by then. And it was one of the most you know masterpiece coaching jobs I've ever seen from Sean McVay to yeah. do that to the Vikings defense that was coming off an NFC Championship game appearance, was number one the year before. And Anthony Barr, a guy who's making his return expected on Sunday, is uh, – was, was absolutely torched for three of those five touchdowns of Jared Goff's. Uh, one of them, Barr later had said it was because they couldn't adjust with a young corner that was in the game. But either way, you could tell they just wanted to get after Anthony Barr. Jared Goff does not have that coaching this time around. I think Anthony Lynn, their offensive coordinator, is a well-respected coach, the former Chargers coach who lost one too many of those one-score games that the Chargers love to be in. But this is not Sean McVay. This is not Jared Goff with Cooper Cup, Robert Woods. All, you know, Todd Gurley, all these weapons that they had had. Brandon Cooks. Um, yeah. Yeah. So I just, I, I think that there's, there's no excuses here, especially with a Lions team that has its back-to-back potentially top picks, missing it with Jeff Okuda on IR, Penny Sewell dealing with an injury. And one stat to illustrate just kind of what I was talking about as far as these teams being on totally different trajectories. I saw something from PFF that the Vikings have the fewest snaps played by rookies in the NFL. And now that is obviously Big part to do with Christian Derrissaw not yet playing a down for them at left tackle, but the Lions have the third most snaps by rookies with 826 to the Vikings, nine, nine snaps by rookies. Um, Mike, I saw you kind of reel your head back at that. Does that say we understand the Derrissaw thing, but they're not getting anything out of Wyatt Davis, Patrick Jones. None of these draft picks outside of Christian Derrissaw, who these picks were healthy, are contributing in any way. No, and we, I mean, we've talked about this on this show. I mean, it's it's not just this year's draft in terms of like the premium picks. Justin Jefferson, the big obvious exception, you know, one of their two first round picks in 2020 had a great rookie season. Looks like he's continuing that arc this season. Looks like he's the real deal. But beyond that, they're not getting a ton of help, at least not from some of the premium picks, especially, you know, when you consider the, the whole laundry list that we've gone through before, you know, the, 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 the Mike Hughes situation, um, you know, uh, Jeff Gladney, the, the whole, you know, just everything that they've, you know, Christian Darris, I'm not getting anything from, from him so far this season. It's, it's, it's a whole, it's a whole litany of, are these guys, you know, a either contributing at a high level, like, you know, the questions we might have about Garrett Bradbury, or are they even still there anymore, which in some cases they're not. So, but yeah, if you're just limiting it to this year, it's definitely it's definitely clear that you know even beyond the injury to Darisaw, they've they've kind of shifted toward we're going to play the more proven guys this year, and you know it's not a bad strategy, but they're one and three right now, so I you know I don't I don't know if it's uh, necessarily paying off at the moment. Yeah, and Christian Darisaw made his NFL debut on the extra point that the Vikings attempted, the lone kick that they had. 
He was a blocker on that extra point group. Clint Kubiak most recently said Rashad Hill is our guy. That is before Ben Rashad Hill was um, tossed around. To put Miles Garrett's guy. <laughs> he was Miles Garrett's guy. That's a good way to put it. Ben, how much longer can they go with this? And I guess just in general, what do you think of their plan with Derisaw to really try to bring him along slowly? Well, I, I think if Rashad Hill has days like that, the plan will change pretty quickly. I, I don't know that you're going to stick with Rashad Hill that much longer if you were having Kirk Cousins pressured as much as he was. I think 50-something percent of his snaps, 53, I think was what Pro Football Focus had it at. And that affected him throughout the day. We have not seen him deal with that kind of pressure. We have not seen him affected by pressure to that degree this year. And I think it's a good reminder of what Dalvin Cook said last week. Dalvin has the ability sometimes to put kind of a put things in, in a, a fairly um, easy to understand. He, he puts a pretty fine point on things sometimes, I guess is what I'm trying to say. And he just said when he's got a clean pocket, he's the best quarterback in the league. And that is the operative phrase is when he has a clean pocket, because we continue to see even when he's been a little bit better at playing off schedule and making things happen with his feet, as we hear him talk about a lot, when things get difficult, when the pass rush is coming after him, he's not going to be a guy that figures out how to beat that unless he's got good protection to help him out. So I think if Hill continues to play like that, you probably see Derisaw get a shot fairly quickly because it becomes a lot harder to, to delay the process of developing him when the alternative is not giving you something better in the present than you might get from a rookie going out there. So you might as well just start the, start the clock, so to speak. Yeah, and they have yet to see Christian Derisaw in a game. So obviously he didn't get that preseason. So had two surgeries uh, this calendar year on a groin injury that he played through last fall at Virginia Tech. So that's kind of what's upended his whole rookie season in the Vikings after one full padded practice uh, or week of padded practices last week. Weren't going to put him out there. I don't think two padded practices this week is going to do much. But in the theme of this podcast, which is the Vikings being or the Lions being just what the Vikings needed. Um, they also lost their top pass rusher, Romeo uh, Okwara, I think his name is. Uh, how you pronounce it, but he was, he was the top pass rusher for years now, back-to-back years. And he went down with an Achilles injury, a team with Detroit that already doesn't generate a whole lot of pressure is going to be without its top threat there. They might get Trey flowers back from IR. He's practicing this week, but this is going to be his first game back if that's the case. And you probably don't think he's going to be the same player that he was certainly at his peak with the Patriots. Um, so this is just, it's a game where you look at the matchups across the board and it's so much easier than it was with the Cleveland Browns and all those tough matchups they faced, especially on the offensive and defensive lines. Um, beyond that, the Vikings do have question marks at corner where Cameron Dantzler and Harrison Hander on the COVID list. Cameron Dantzler tested positive this week, came out, tweeted, I'm vaccinated, uh, pray for me. Um, it, that, the good thing is that if you're in the NFL and you're vaccinated, um, it's basically 48 hours. He needs to test negative twice. There's a chance he can play Sunday, but if he can't, we're back to the Bashaw Breland experience because I don't know if it seemed like this to you guys, but, um, Mike, it seemed to me that Cameron Dancer might've played his way into a starting role. If he were going to be available right away next week. I think so. I mean, I feel like the whole Cameron Dantzler thing is a mystery to me. And like, I know 
They were, gen, you know, the corners last year generally were not good and there was just problems across the board. But I thought he, uh, of a bad group, I thought he was clearly the best one last year and at least flashed enough that you wanted to see more. You know, I get you bring in two veterans, Mackenzie Alexander, also you know, a third is naturally your nickel corner. Um, but, you know, for, for Dantzler to be inactive in week one and then, you know, to see how much better he's looked than Breland when he's been out there is, is a little bit, is a little bit interesting. It's almost like a more of a doghouse situation, kind of a point made than a, uh, than a performance based, uh, performance based thing. But yeah, I, I think, I think you're right about that, that he's trending toward that role. Um, and you know, maybe, and maybe, maybe being deactivated was a wake up call. I don't know. Maybe that ended up being the thing he needed. Yeah. And Cameron did talk about that. I think he had said he was more, you know, just hungrier or whatever after that. And Patrick Peterson had asked him about this and he just said, sometimes it's hard for young guys to deal with that when you've kind of been given the whole world as a top college prospect or top college player. I mean, he didn't have to play special teams in Mississippi state. And then he comes in and has to do this uh, here where if you're not a starter, you had to do special teams. He wasn't really about that as Mike Zimmer talked about. And that's in part why he was deactivated. And Ben, I thought it was interesting that Mike Zimmer after the game brought up um, the Browns came back at us with the same kind of route that uh, DK Metcalf ran for a touchdown against Breland. And he said, uh, he said, dancer just covered it. And, and it's something as simple as that, where you see a kid put in the same situation. He doesn't mess up in the red zone. And I guess the red zone has been one of the biggest issues for Bashad Breland. Yeah. I mean, we, we've seen that become a problem, especially, you know, at the end of halves uh, when, when teams have scored a lot. And, and that's certainly where the Browns were able to do it on Sunday, but yeah, I I think, I mean, a lot of red zone playing corner in the NFL just comes down to man coverage. I mean, that that's primarily the concept you're going to get in the red zone because there's just too much traffic to, to try to get through and and to pass guys off. And and, uh, it's also where you can get a lot of man beaters because you can use all the traffic to your advantage, but primarily on the money downs, third downs, you see man coverage a lot, fourth downs, you're going to see it. And in the red zone, you're going to see it. And it just comes down to, I think, being able to execute that and do it well. And we saw Cameron Dancer struggle with that last year, probably most famously against DK Metcalf in Seattle when he got the fairly stern rebuke from Harrison Smith as captured in slow motion on national TV. Um, But, yeah, if he's able to be better, use his size down there to – kind of impart a physical element of the game. I think that helps a lot. I think he'll get a chance because Breland certainly has not done enough to suggest that he's got the job locked down. I I think they hope for that. I think when they signed him, they figured this guy and Patrick Peterson are going to be our base corners, but he's opened that issue back up with how he's played. And I think certainly Cameron Dantzler has a chance here to whenever he gets back on the field to kind of assert himself and, and maybe take that job for good. Yeah, Breland's been wildly inconsistent, really hasn't even made some of the plays that you'd seen from him before. This guy came in here with, you know, 80-some deflections and 80-some career starts, and you just haven't seen that kind of disruptive play in a Vikings uniform yet. Seems like he's a guy who's still just not comfortable with where he's at um, in the system or whatever's going on with him. He's just not playing well for the Minnesota Vikings. So as we open up, um, because we got a lot of questions here, as we open up our mailbag, we should get to a lot of questions about people initially this morning news leaked that the Patriots were going to release Stefan Gilmore 
Instead, that started a wave of, of teams re- reaching out to inquire about a trade for him. It looks like the Carolina Panthers are trading for him. So the Vikings are not going to land Stefan Gilmore, no matter how many people on social media wanted that to happen. Uh, ben, I know you gotta, you got to head out here soon, but quickly, there's just no way they ever would have gotten a guy like that anyway. And instead now they're going to be looking at him potentially two weeks down the road. I think unless he's still on pup, then he might not be able to play against them. But either way, they, I don't think they were ever going to get Gilmore if he were available in part, because why would he come to a one and three team? Well, there's that. And there's the contract situation. He's I think due to make like $7 million the rest of this year. The team only has three and a half million dollars to play with at the moment. You can always go do the conversions but then you're having to kick more money down the road. And they've already done a lot of that into next year to sign guys for this year. Yes. It would be nice to have him. They certainly could use him, but the number of teams that have the cap space to make a move like that in the middle of the season, aren't that many. There certainly aren't many that are playing with this many veterans already. And uh, there was a lot of talk about Gilmore going to the Packers, but the Packers don't have the money either. And the fact that, that was talked about. It sounded like he, from what was reported, was interested in going there, but they don't have the money to do it either. So he ends up kind of, I think he's from basically right outside of Charlotte. So he's, he's back home, could get a contract there, um, probably needs to come back here in a couple of weeks. I, I think I saw maybe a tweet from David Newton, who covers the Panthers for ESPN, saying Gilmore would be ready week seven, which would mean he would miss the Vikings. But, I think uh, I saw that too, yeah. Yeah, if that's if that's the way it ends up going, that would mean he wouldn't play in that game. But the idea of him coming here just didn't work with the numbers. Um, for a lot of teams, that's the case. Certainly was the case for the Vikings. Yeah, that's right. So that means because he was on PUP and was traded, he wasn't released from PUP. He must, that must make him stay on PUP, I guess. And then he can't, can't play until week seven in that case. Um, so we can skip past a lot of the Stephon Gilmore questions. Because that's yeah, not going to happen. There was a lot of them. People, there was there was one good one that was basically, I think it, it might have been okay. He was a it was a Danny Danny Carlson DM that I got. He said, with the Gilmore news, in a fantasy world, which position would the Vikings most benefit from adding an All Pro player via trade? My guess said another way. Well, position group is the biggest concern right now. Wow, that's interesting. Um, I mean, I, I don't I don't think that's corner or offensive line probably right. Yeah, I, I I don't even say corner. I would say if you could add like another all pro pass rusher, like, but that's just kind of the debate over constructing football teams, right? About is is the pass rush a bigger impact than um, the coverage? But yeah, offensive line would have to be it, right? It would have to be. I think yeah. so. I mean, it 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 kind of feels like they're it's like they're kind of set, but it's not good on the offensive line. You know what I mean? Like they, they have their guys, but are the guys good? So that's, you know, at, at corner, I think you could make a case that, wow, if you added someone there who was, you know, I think Patrick Peterson's been fine this year. If you had someone of his caliber on the other side, they, they'd look pretty good on the, on the, on the back half. Probably would probably would. Um, we have a question here from Cody that wants to know how does Anthony Barr fit back into the rotation? And I think that's an interesting question because we did talk about it a little bit, but also in the sense that their third downs are where I would expect we might see Barr playing in more maybe. I, I don't know, or mixing in a little bit here or there because 
you've got their blitz packages and their third downs and their pass rush that they like to do so much with him that they don't, you don't do that much with Nick Vigil. I know Vigil had a sack in that first game against the Bengals, but he hasn't done a whole lot since then with Barr, He brings that experience having been here since 2014, been in the system knows just about every blitz Mike Zimmer wants to run in the books. I think you could expand your pressure packages a little bit with him. And, and I do wonder that even if Barr's not at a hundred percent where he could play every snap, do you get him on the field in some of those situations to, to add to that pressure that they've been trying to generate on quarterbacks? Um, Cause I think that's where they could use him the most as we saw though, Mike, in that Rams game in 2018, I don't know how much you want him in coverage all the time. <laughs> he can be a little susceptible there, but um, I think the biggest impact Barr might make is maybe even in that pass rush or the run defense in general. Yeah, I agree with that. I think that's those are the two areas where he's been best, and maybe that's where they're where they've been missing him the most, given you know their run defense was so poor last year and it continued to be poor this year. Maybe he makes enough of those kind of disruptive splash plays, but also you know his athleticism occupies certain guys, makes you have to account for him in certain ways that leaves other guys open to make plays as well. You know, things that are five yard gains right now, sometimes maybe those are two or three yard gains. If Anthony Barr is in there, that might not seem like a big difference, but it changes down in distance and it helps you get off the field. And when you're giving up almost five yards of carry, that's making it awfully tough to get off the field. Yeah. Yep. Um, all right, Mike, you get a question ready here. I'm going to bring this one yeah. up. From Lee. Lee wants to know who could possibly be an interim head coach if Mike Zimmer is let go before the season ends. Um, and, and this kind of dovetails with a question we got from somebody else wanting to know is Sunday a must win as we talked yeah, was, about at the top of the podcast. It might yeah, be that, was, that was the one I was going to get to too. There's one from sports King saying there's two of them from him, but with the, the second half was Vikings lose Sunday is Zimmer gone and who should be his successor. So, I mean, it's, it's interesting because it doesn't feel like there's a ton of obvious internal candidates on the staff. I mean, I've talked about this. I don't know. I can't remember if it was with you or with chip, but I feel like Andre Patterson is probably the most logical choice. It's another defensive guy, um, but you know you've got a brand new offensive coordinator. You don't necessarily kind of have that, you know, former head coach on staff right now necessarily that you've had before that could you know kind of be a a seamless stopgap. So I, I don't know what what would you and how would you answer that question? Yeah, I think it would have to be Andre Patterson because he is the assistant head coach. He is Mike Zimmer's basically as yeah, number two in the in the job. And when you look at how this coaching staff is constructed, you hit it right on the head. It's a first year offensive coordinator. It's a first year special teams coordinator. Um, and then the other coordinator on defense is Zimmer's son. So I don't think you can him to promote your promote a son. Imagine uh, what Andre if they did. That'd be amazing <laughs> if they fired Zimmer and hired the other Zimmer. Oh, that would be horrific because Andre Patterson deserves I yeah. think oh, that opportunity. It would be to... a, yeah, it would be terrible. It would be ridiculous. <laughs> he, so yeah, Patterson deserves that opportunity to step in there, and who knows how he would do. But I think he would be a good leader of men in the sense of being a calming personality, a good speaker, communicator, all those things that make him a good position coach. And then we would have to see how he does as a play caller, really, for the first time. Because as we know, George Edwards, Adam Zimmer, those have been the guys who were getting those opportunities for the most part in preseason games. But Mike, it would have to be with them losing games like Sunday to Detroit if we ever got to that point. Yeah, I mean, I you know, I feel like the Seattle win kind of took us off the the immediate firing watch for a while. And you know, the, the Browns game, I thought they 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 played below average. Um, you know, they they weren't subpar in every phase of the game. But you know, you, as good as the Browns are, you, you 
they didn't look good. Like that, that could have been a double digit loss very easily, a double digit home loss to a, a good team. But I don't think that's a team that we're penciling in for an AFC championship game appearance. I think they're maybe like the third or fourth best team in the AFC right now. It's a good team, but not, not a team that should dominate you at home. So you lose that game. Then, you know, the thing about this year's Vikings is they're talented enough that I feel like they can play with just about anyone. If they get a game where everything's clicking, they're also deficient in enough areas where I feel like they could play down to the competition in pretty much any game too. So that's why the lions game, while it looks on paper, like a, like an easy game, like a good time to get healthy, good time to get two and three, get some of your confidence back. It, any game against anybody makes me nervous this year. If I'm a Vikings fan. That's actually a good segue into this question. I got a DM from uh, Ethan wants to know, looking across the NFC, it looks looking across the NFC, it looks like it's pretty wide open. It doesn't seem like the AFC where there's an obvious pecking order. Uh, what do you guys think about the Vikings in the NFC? And if they put some things together, could they make a run? Um, I think that's interesting because they do set up some of these games here in the second half or even the end of this first half of the schedule. It's Carolina, it's Dallas. Um, then you go and you face San Francisco. So even though you've dropped a game to Arizona in the NFC already, I do see a kind of run up where you could start to separate yourselves in the conference. If they do find a way somehow to, to beat some of these teams I'm talking about, I think San Francisco with a rookie Trey Lance is certainly possible. Carolina, uh, even though they are a young and fast and good defense, it's still Sam Darnold. They might not have Christian McCaffrey. Um, Mike, is, is, could this team find a way to go on a run, specifically when we talk about these NFC teams they're going to be facing? And I get, what do you think, too, about just the outlook in the NFC? Because it does seem kind of open to me. I think it is, too. I was feeling like it was less open until Arizona beat the Rams the other day. And then I was like, OK, well, maybe the Rams, you know, every team's going to lose a game. And Arizona's a good team, too. So, But I, I feel like, you know, if, if you're being honest, the, the four best teams probably right now in the, in the NFC, at least from what we've seen so far, uh, it's Tampa Bay again, it's the Rams, it's Green Bay, and it's maybe Arizona until proven otherwise, especially with the way Kyler Murray's playing. And after that, it's pretty squishy. And even those top four teams, I don't think they're, none of them are, are unbeatable. So the idea of going on a run, I guess, is... It's predicated on consistency. I, I don't think it's out of the question that the Vikings rebound and go nine and eight this year and get into the playoffs. From there, could they win three road games against good teams? I just don't think so. I think I kind of feel like the ceiling for this year's team is kind of like the ceiling was in 2019, which was get into the playoffs and maybe pull an upset. And at some point, you're just going to get beat by a better team that matches up better against you. It does feel like there's that class. I know they came and, and frankly should have beaten the Cardinals on the road with a 37-yard field goal, but it does feel like there's that class of the Rams, who just lost to the aforementioned Cardinals, the Bucks, and the Packers maybe, um, that are kind of those that tier above in the NFC, everybody else. And Dallas is a team that's seemingly trying to play that way too with their defense coming together a little bit. Um but in general, I do think it's more open. So there, there's a point to that. It's saying that you're not at least in the AFC where you're looking up at the Kansas City Chiefs and saying, well, oh boy, there's the class of the entire NFL. And then, oh, by the way, there's Lamar Jackson, there's Josh Allen and a complete Buffalo team. Um, there just seems to be a lot more talent and, and better teams on the AFC side of things in the NFL right now. So if you're looking for silver linings of where the Vikings are, I, I guess that is one of them. Um, all right, what other questions we got, Mike? I uh, got one from uh, 
Greg here through four weeks. What is this offensive line? Solid two weeks, bad two weeks. And there's a shakeup in the future on the way. Hill seems he is only what he is. So only prospect of solid improvement probably lies with a rookie maybe getting better. I kind of agree with all that. It's, you know, and I keep saying this, I think I've said this on daily delivery too. It's like the offensive line, it, it teases you a little bit, but a problem isn't solved if you can't depend on it being solved against good teams. Like it's, you know, it, it's not, it's not fixed if you can't do it against somebody who's actually good. And they just, they went up against a really good Browns defense and they couldn't, they couldn't protect cousins. Uh, I mean, the problems in week one were more penalties and self-inflicted stuff than it was so much pressure. So, you know, maybe it's only one, you know, truly ga- true game where they've just kind of had that they couldn't control this front four, which we've seen in the past. So I'm willing to give them like a little bit of of rope. I, I liked a lot of what I saw in week two and three. Like there was more clean pockets for Kirk Cousins than I think we've seen for a while. So I'm willing to kind of see if some of this was just Cleveland has a really good front four and they had a bad day. But on on average, I just it's hard to imagine them not having this problem recur, especially in big moments against good teams. Yeah. I think, I think the Browns matchup and Mike, you and I talked on, on daily delivery about on Tuesday, about a lot of how it's the same story. Every time they go up against, uh, you know, Kenny Clark and Zadarius Smith, Akeem Hicks and Khalil Mack, uh, Joey Mo- Bosa and, and or Nick Bosa and DeForest Buckner in the playoff game in San Francisco. It's just always the same story. They just get overpowered, get beaten. The O-line gets, gets overworked. And to me, it comes down to that part of it. It's, it's not just when they face good speed rushers who can get around you. It's when they face guys like Miles Garrett and Jadavian Clowney who can literally run through Rashad Hill. Like Miles Garrett picked up Rashad Hill and threw him as if he wasn't a professional football player getting paid <laughs> to stop him. And that kind of thing is no disrespect to Rashad Hill, but you can't have that happen consistently when you face power edge rushers who are the rare breeds of, of Garrett, Mack, uh, Daniel Hunter, the guys who can mix speed and power. And because and, it didn't matter when the Vikings put a triple team on Miles Garrett, he went through the middle blocker, which was Rashad Hill. And the other two guys couldn't do anything to help him because he was going through one guy, not around a guy. <laughs> you can't do anything there if you can just get ragdolled like that. So to me, that you're going to get that with Miles Garrett. There's not a whole lot you can do to stop that. You hope Christian Derrissaw doesn't. You know, he has the lower body strength and the ability to anchor in there and not get tossed aside like that. But is a rookie version of Christian Derrissaw in his first NFL games going to be that? Are you going to be able to get the same out of that? I think if you're the Vikings, you draw some confidence from this offensive line in that when we went up against a true speed rusher in Chandler Jones in Arizona, we did find ways to slow him down. We did find ways to push the ball downfield because when you go up against those types of guys, double, triple teams, those work better because you can slow down speed moves with more horizontal blocking and just adding more bodies against it. If you're just getting flat run over like a Mack truck, there's not a whole lot you can do with that. So I I do think that it's these certain types of matchups you're just going to consistently struggle with. And I don't know when you look at the schedule going forward, if Dallas gets to Marcus Lawrence back by then, it's a similar deal. Um, You're going to face that with Mack in Chicago, certainly. But I do think this team can compete with this offensive line. They just need Kirk Cousins. They need Clint Kubiak. They need Dalvin Cook. They need that thin margin for error to never pop up and and cross over into that error like they got on Sunday against the Browns. Because 
you need everybody to play perfectly basically. And, and they, they did that. I thought in Arizona and that got them through. And so if you're, if you're looking for any confidence in this O-line, you can say, look, we've gone up against a good front before we produced, you just got to find ways to do it again. And on Sunday against the Browns, they couldn't slow down miles Garrett enough that therefore Kirk cousins wasn't the same guy. Therefore Clint Kubiak's calls weren't hitting the same way. So I think it's possible. I just think like with every conversation about this team, the margin for error is so thin and they're always going to lose those matchups where you're just overpowered. And I just, I don't, I don't know the answer for that other than getting better players. <laughs> yeah. And it, well, and it, and what's interesting is when they, when they run into those matchups, it's not like the offense struggles a little bit, but they still put up 17, 20 points and maybe find a, a way to win. It's just, they hit a wall. Like you think about, you know, what happened last year against the Colts where they score 11 points. You look at 2019 where they had six points against the Bears, where they had 10 points in that late game against the Packers where, you know, there was still some playoff implications online. The, the 10 points they put up in the playoff loss to the 49ers um, and then, you know, seven last week. It's not like like when they when they come up against a, a type of defense that they just can't solve, it's not just like they struggle a little. They, they struggle to the point where they cannot win the game like they just don't they can't score enough points to possibly win the game and that comes down to in my opinion the quarterback not being the improviser the creator the the, yes. the best um example or comparison i've ever heard kirk described as or, or just boiling down kirk cousins game into a a metaphor is that he is just like a baker he can go ahead and he can take all the ingredients and he can follow the list. And if everything goes according to plan and he has everything, you're going to get a great cake. But if you want a chef who can just kind of take the ingredients and make something on his own and just make something happen, that's not your guy. He just can't do it. He's never been able to be that guy. He's not the Patrick Mahomes, the Aaron Rodgers, the Russell Wilson, the Kyler Murray all down the line. He's not the kind of guy that can take his, take a bad situation and make something great out of it or take nothing and make something great out. That's just not him. If the title of this podcast episode isn't Kirk Cousins is a baker, not a chef. And if I don't use that at some point in the future, I'll be very disappointed. <laughs> both those I have to, I have to credit. I think it was Matt Waldman who does a lot of uh, analysis online and rookie analysis and stuff. He's, he's the guy who had read, right. He wrote a great thing in the off season um, about that. And I think that was the premise of it. And it is, it's the best way I've ever heard him describe because, and that's just it, Mike, when you say they just flatline on offense in those games. I think that's a big reason why, because if your running game gets shut down, you lose the matchups up front, your quarterback's sitting there and, and everybody's looking at him and saying, okay, go, go make something happen. This is the reality up front, go make something happen. And he continuously can't do that. He needs to be on schedule needs to have things. He's a read progression quarterback. He needs to go through those things. He's not going to run around and make it happen. We've, we've just seen that movie before too many times. Better on the great British bake-off than on chopped is what you're telling me. <laughs> Exactly. I like that. I like that. All right. Well, do we have any more, uh, any more questions here? Um, oh, this we're all actually, kind of along the same line. Let's finish up with, you got a good one. Yeah. I got one from Logan. That's, that's good. A different topic. He, he asked Daniel Hunter made every tackle in the run game last week. He was all over the field, recorded a sack. He kept us in the game. Will a deal get done before the end of the season with Daniel Hunter? And I, I would say no, only because that's just not their MO. This team typically waits for seasons to conclude, then goes back to the table. And I could see them doing a deal with Daniil in February after their season ends or beginning of March before it gets to the point where they would have to make some kind of decision with him and he's due all that money. I think it's like $18 million in March in a signing bonus on that contract. That is effectively a deadline to redo that deal. 
And I believe that with everything he's shown, why wouldn't you? And it's just a matter of, can they come to terms on something like that? Will Daniil be happy with what they decide to offer him? Um, that is the real question. That's be a strange move considering there's, you know, he might want to bet on himself and there could be a possible regime change at some point too here if things go poorly. So extending him at this point seems like it would be odd timing in a lot of different ways. Yeah, it would be odd. Yeah, you're right. That's a good point too. For why would Daniil want to do that when he might want to bet on himself, get even more sacks or rack up more pressures, and then is in even better negotiating leverage by the time the season's done. All right, that should wrap it up for this episode of the Access Vikings podcast. You guys can check us out on Sunday from U.S. Bank Stadium after the Vikings play the Detroit Lions. Maybe you should get off the podcast.